As you move phones back to bags and pockets, I'd like to mention a few of our upcoming events. Tomorrow night, Athenaeum Fellow and award-winning artist Christina McComb will be presenting her latest work, an original artist book inspired by this library. A week from today, Robert Zimmerman, Jr. of the Charles River Watershed Association will be presenting the William Orville Thompson Endowed Lecture, Nature's Design, Land, Water, and Climate Change in Boston. And on December 17th, we will cap off the season with the Moth Radio Hour and a presentation on storytelling. All of our events are made possible with the support of our members, and we thank you for making them available to us. Our speaker this evening is Nathaniel Philbrick, a perennially award-winning, best-selling author who needs little introduction to this audience. Not only is Nat one of the best-known interpreters of history in the country, he has also been a champion and dear friend of the Athenaeum for more than a decade as one of our dedicated proprietors who holds share number 315. Nat has been bringing American history to life for a broad readership since 1993, when he published A History of Nantucket Island, where he lives. In the years that have followed, he has earned numerous national awards and nominations from the highest arbiters of literary quality, including the National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize, the American Library Association, the Boston Globe Horn Book Awards, and the New York Times. Tonight, he will speak to us about his latest book, the 12th of his works of history, entitled In the Hurricane's Eye. It explores the thrilling story of the finale to the Revolutionary War, the Battle of the Chesapeake, the genius of George Washington, and the victory at Yorktown. The Christian Science Monitor lauded him for writing it, quote, with all the zest and eloquence his millions of readers have come to expect. Please join me in welcoming Nathaniel Philbrick to the podium. Well, thank you. Thank you. It is really great to be here. You don't know, I've been on book tour now since October 16th, and I'm in the home stretch, and to be at the Athenaeum feels genuinely like coming home. So thank you for being here tonight. And, you know, I never thought I was going to write three books about the revolution. Uh, most of my books are about uh, groups of people, uh, whether they are a, the crew of a whale ship that's just been rammed by a whale, 102 pilgrims on a leaky ship bound for a coast at win in winter about which they know nothing, groups of people under enormous stress. I, you know, I love to see what happens to human behavior uh, under those kinds of conditions. And I live on Nantucket Island, uh, a population of 15,000 people year-round. And uh, I kind of know what it's like to live in a community that size. And Boston, in the time of the Revolution, was an island, bore no resemblance to what it is today. A 1.1 square mile island joined, uh, uh, to, joined to the mainland by that little neck of land uh, that was underwater. In, in a spring high tide, and uh, it had a population of 15,000 people. Now, I've, uh, living on Nantucket, I know if you're, in a, if you're on an island with that many people, uh, you may not know everyone by name, but you recognize them at the grocery store or whatever, and life is very personal. And I 
began to wonder what would it have been like to be one of those 15,000 people on Boston when a revolution took over your town. And so thus was born what would become Bunker Hill. And uh, the, obviously, perhaps, the Battle of Bunker Hill is the climax of that book. But I found myself surprisingly uh, fascinated with the gentleman that arrived a few weeks later, General George Washington. Uh, this was not the George Washington that I'd been looking at on the $1 bill all my life. This was George Washington in his early 40s, red-haired and fiery, aggressive, not yet the defensive-minded general he would become. And he was not very happy about the army he was about to inherit, all these New Englanders. Now, on Nantucket, we still have that wonderful uh, institution known as the town meeting. You know, this is democracy at its bare-knuckled best, where, uh, you know, every, every meeting, a few characters get together and uh, fight it out. And, uh, and uh, you know, and thus is born a decision. It's just an amazing process to watch closely. And uh, when Washington would give an order, uh, his soldiers would uh, inevitably say, whoa, wait a minute, uh, let us discuss whether we not we want to follow that order. And if we do, we'll, we'd be happy to do that. And this kind of attitude drove Washington crazy. And he, you know, how was he going to defeat the British with an army like this if this war went on for any length of time? The British were, uh, had now had occupied Boston as they were under siege by the uh, American forces in Cambridge and Roxbury, uh, uh, you know how he, what he wanted to do was attack Boston, uh, burn it to the ground if, if necessary, and end this thing as quickly as possible. Several times he brought this proposal before his council of war, and it was a crazy proposal because he didn't have the gunpowder. You know, this ragtag band of provincial soldiers would have been mauled to death uh, by the professionals in Boston. And every time uh, he brought this before his council of war, it was rejected unanimously. This was a Washington I needed to follow. Eventually, the siege of Boston ends uh, when a bookseller, and God bless independent booksellers, <laughs> Uh, when a bookseller named Henry Knox, uh, who had learned everything he knew about the military and the books in his bookstore, was sent up to Fort Ticonderoga at the southern tip of Lake Champlain and transported miraculously uh, dozens of cannons over the snow on huge sleds to Framingham. And then in March of 1776, in a brilliant uh, nighttime maneuver, several of those cannons, along with a quickly constructed fort, suddenly appeared on Dorchester Heights. British General William Howe realized he needed to get out of Boston quickly, and uh, thus was born uh, Evacuation Day, you know, the same day as St. Patrick's Day. And the, was the, from Washington's perspective, the, the too badly uh, anticlimactic end of the Siege of Boston. So I had to follow Washington, but who did I want to pair him up with for the middle years of the revolution? Now, my, mother's, uh, my mother was an interesting character. She, uh, uh, she was an individualist, and her personal hero was Benedict Arnold. And mom smoked a pipe, and when she would light up at a restaurant, it was just horrifying for her teenage sons. And uh, she was a contrarian, and she always said Benedict Arnold was much better than anyone gave him credit for. And I began to think, well, what about 
preparing Benedict Arnold in Washington. And so Valiant Ambition, uh, that book begins in the summer of 1776. The empire has struck back and New York is in its sights. And over that summer, uh, a huge British invasionary force of 400 ships, 40,000 soldiers and sailors. That's more people than in Philadelphia, the largest city in North America at that time, assemble. And Washington, who's now moved his, his uh, army of, uh, uh, to the heights of Brooklyn and to New York, are dug in and are, you know, are going to try to deal with this huge force. It doesn't go well. Washington is completely outgeneraled, uh, forced to retreat across the East River in a brilliant nighttime uh, maneuver, but ultimately forced to retreat from New York and all the way across New Jersey, ultimately to the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware River. And he's lost three quarters of his army to desertion. This is bad. And what makes it really bad is the, the Brits now have the. Uh, foothold on the quarter of water that reaches all the way up to Canada. The New Hudson River that goes up to Albany, Lake George takes a jog to the right, and then there at Fort Ticonderoga, Lake Champlain extends more than 100 miles all the way into Canada. And as Washington was losing New York, another large British invasionary force was poised to come down Lake Champlain. And there was one American general that was assigned to to try to stop them, and his name was Benedict Arnold. He would fight what is known as the Battle of Valcour Island, just a few miles below Plattsburgh, on what's now the New York side of Lake Champlain, and fight in, uh, an incredible uh, draw with the British, uh, such a vicious battle that they would ultimately decide, maybe we'll postpone attempting to take Fort Ticonderoga till next year. Uh, and this was a good thing, because if they had taken Fort Ticonderoga and linked up with William Howe in New York, uh, that would have given them the, that quarter of water. And this was before multi-lane highways and trains. The only way to effectively transport an army was by water. And if they had accomplished that, that would have been the end of the United States of America uh, in, in uh, 1776. Arnold succeeds in this, and so that valiant ambition begins with Washington, the one man destined to hold this country together at his lowest, Benedict Arnold at his highest, and we watch as over the course of the next four years, their careers take very different trajectories until finally in the late summer of 1780, uh, Benedict Arnold decides it is his destiny to tear this country apart and turn over West Point, and once again it all comes down to water, turn over West Point on, on the Hudson River over to the British with its 3,000 American soldiers and cannons and ammunition. Uh, it doesn't work out, thank goodness, uh, and, and that's where Valiant Ambition ends. In the Hurricane's Eye takes up right at there, which is something of a cliffhanger. And uh, it's, it's the absolute low point of the war. Not only has Arnold, one of Washington's best generals, defected, uh, but it seems as if the American people have turned their backs on the conflict they so ardently embraced in 1776. Uh, we, we went into this revolution because we didn't want to pay taxes to the British. Well, we apparently didn't want to pay the taxes required to fund Washington's army, which was withering on the vine. The recruitment levels were embarrassingly low. It looked like it was about to all fall apart. And Washington was locked in a stalemate. He was, for more than two years, he had been stationed on the Hudson River 
glaring at Sir Henry Clinton, the British commander-in-chief in New York, with nothing happening. He complains. It says, the war goes on like a cart without wheels, you know, just dragging on. What action is occurring is down in the south, and it's not good. Uh, they lose Charleston to the British. Lord Cornwallis, a name we will hear later on, uh, is rampaging across South Carolina with intentions of moving into North Carolina. In, in August, he defeats the hero of, of the Battle of Saratoga, Horatio Gates, at Camden, South Carolina, completely destroying the American Southern Army, and it just does not look good. Uh, Washington uh, decides to send the, one of the great unheralded uh, generals of the war, uh, Nathaniel Green, that fighting Quaker. We, we on Nantucket love fighting Quakers. Uh, but that fighting Quaker, Nathaniel Green, to do battle with Cornwallis. Uh, and it's, it's magnificent. They, the, Cornwallis and Green chase each other across North Carolina. It's called the Race to the Dan River. Uh, somehow, uh, Green eludes him, swells his army with militiamen, and then at Guilford Courthouse now near Winston-Salem in North Carolina, they do battle. And uh, Lord Cornwallis can claim victory because he has possession of the field, but Green has succeeded in inviscerating his army, forcing him into retreat to Wilmington, North Carolina to, to recoup. Meanwhile, before all this, in, the winter, in December of 1780, the British send their newest brigadier general, none other than Benedict Arnold, now a British general, to the Chesapeake with a small-sized army. He quickly proves he might be the best general on both sides of this war. He moves with lightning speed up the James River. Uh, by this time, the Virginia capital has moved from Williamsburg to Richmond, assuming that Richmond is too far inland for the enemy to attack it. Well, not for Benedict Arnold. He burns Richmond, sends uh, Governor Thomas Jefferson running for his life, and this is like the worst news not only the American people but especially Washington can hear. You know, the, the traitor is in his home state. He sends the young French general, Lafayette, you know, in his 20s, become a kind of surrogate son to, to Washington. Washington sends him south to do battle with Benedict Arnold. Washington is, you know, okay, now what it has hopes though. There are hopes and they all have to do not with his own army, but with the French army. Because with the great victory at the Battle of Saratoga in the fall of 1777, the French have decided to come into the army, into the war. Uh, they're not here to necessarily help America, they're here to take it to Great Britain. Because in the previous decade, during what we call the French and Indian War, usually called the Seven Years' War, the French have been humiliated by the British. They've lost Canada. Their ally, Spain, has, has lost uh, Florida and other possessions in the south. And even before that war is over, France launches a campaign of what it calls revanche, revenge. We're going to get them back. We're going to work at it. And what they focus on is their navy. They realize they've got France, Britain, Britain has the largest, best navy in the world. If they're going to have any hope of bringing Britain down a peg, they've got to improve their navy. They create a naval academy in Brest. They apply enlightenment ideals and begin to study naval warfare analytically. 
uh, creating tactical and strategic guides that are way beyond anything um, in Britain at this point. They create a whole new signaling system. You know, this is before radios and, and cell phones. It's all done with signal flags. And the, the Brits are using a system that dates back to the previous century that varies with each fleet. You know, they, they haven't even agreed on what they all are. The French come up with a very sophisticated numeracy system. And in the first initial conflicts at sea in, in the spring of 1778, in the, in the English Channel, it's clear this is a different French Navy. And the alarm bells begin to ring. Now Washington says, I need the French Navy. And, and this is where, you know, we think of Washington as a land-based general, a planter, a farmer, permanently attached to his horse. But he grew up in the tidewater on rivers. He understood the importance of the water strategically and at war. And he immediately recognized, once the French were a part of this conflict, that he needed to establish naval superiority before he could deliver a, the blow against the British that might win this thing. And uh, the, up until this point, the British Navy had a stranglehold on the Atlantic seaboard. And, you know, we have a tendency, I think, to look back at the navies of, of the 18th century as, as kind of, uh, you know, quaint, tall ships of their era. Nothing could be further from the truth. These were highly sophisticated technological creations, the most sophisticated technology of the 18th century. Uh, naval warfare was, was fought um, in a, with a line of battle in which these huge warships would line up very close to one another, uh, creating a floating version of a, a fortress, basically, while the other fleet, also lined up, would come alongside of them, and then they would bring their huge cannons to bear and just fight it out. And uh, by this time, it had been established that the ideal size for a ship of the line what was known as a 74, 74 cannons on this ship. Uh, these are cannons capable of hurling a, a cannonball as many as 20 pounds, 30 pounds, more than a mile in distance. And uh, they would have 500 to 750 men on one of these ships. It took 2,000 oak trees to build one 74. That's 76 acres of forest. These things could be out there for months uh, half a year without any assistance from land, you know, and this is you know, without any fossil fuels. If we were to lose all that technology we take for granted, we would be hard pressed to create a ship as sophisticated and maneuverable and endurable as, as one of these ships of the line. And this is what Washington desperately needed. One ship of the line had more artillery than his entire army in the beginning years of the war. And so he was desperate for the French to bring a fleet up the, the Atlantic seaboard and bring him victory. But the Brits now had you know, their own agenda. As I said before, they, they wanted to get the British more than they wanted to help us. And the other thing that happened was that a colonial rebellion suddenly became a world war. And you know, we, in our, our self-centered American way, uh, think of the, are the 13 colonies or states, depending on your point of view, as the jewel in the empire's crown. But the fact of the matter is, the real money was to be made in the Caribbean. The, the sugar islands, uh, uh, the, the sugar plantations, were, were, where the wealth was created. France got a third of its income from what's now Haiti. You know, just one island. I mean, it was amazing. And so when this began to break out 
and became a world war. And by the way, there's fighting as far away as India uh, as this is going on. And so this is stretching England's uh, uh, resources to the brink because Spain also comes in to help out France. France needs Spain because uh, in order for their navy to, to pair up with Britain, they need the help of the Spanish. And so this becomes... The, the Caribbean is where the fighting uh, is concentrated. Uh, the Brits take uh, uh, St. Lucia. Uh, the, the French respond with Tobago, back and forth, and no one's showing any interest in coming up the coast and helping out Washington. At one point, he says, it's as if a chasm has sprung up between me and the French Navy. And then, in the fall of 1780, Something happens down there in the, those southern islands that begins to change everything. You know, we had a bad hurricane season uh, this summer and fall. It was nothing compared to the fall of 1780. Uh, in the hurricane's eye begins um, to the first chapter with a British frigate, the Phoenix. And a frigate was smaller than a ship of the line. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, faster and more maneuverable, served as the eyes and ears of the fleet. And the Phoenix was down there in the Caribbean, and, and they knew the, 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 the Spanish in Havana wanted to, to attack British-held Pensacola and get back Florida. So the Phoenix had, had cruised by Havana, had gone up to Pensacola, and was now between uh, Cuba and Jamaica when the wind began to build. Now, this is before uh, modern forecasting. This was before when Jim Cantori shows up, you know something bad is going to happen meteorologically. This was, you know, whatever is happening is happening. And the wind starts building, and this ship is, is jibing back and forth between, in the channel between Cuba and Jamaica at night. The wind building to hurricane force, every stitch of canvas is, is, is down. Ultimately, um, the, the wind builds well beyond that. They're forced to chop down the mast to keep themselves from capsizing when a huge wave hurls the ship stern first into the rocky shore of Havana. Of, of, excuse me, of Cuba, uh, they're being pounded against these rocks all night. Day comes, and they realize they're just 50 yards from the shore. They throw out a line, they scurry onto shore, they finally end up back in Montego Bay, only to hear that every other ship that was there in Montego Bay when they first left it has been lost at sea. This is a bad storm, but it's just the beginning. On October 10, what came to be called the Great Storm of 1780 hit the island of Barbados. By the following day, virtually every house, including those built of stone, had been leveled to the ground and 6,000 inhabitants were dead. Many of the cannons at Fort James were hurled more than 100 feet through the air. The extraordinary surge of water and wind carried a ship so far onto shore that it landed on top of the island's hospital. The hurricane-whipped rain stripped the trees of bark, indicating that the winds at Barbados must have exceeded 200 miles an hour. The trees were power-washed of their bark. A similar scene of destruction occurred at St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and Martinique, where a convoy carrying several thousand French troops were blow was blown out to sea. One estimate puts the total death count of the great storm of 1780 at 22,000 making it the deadliest hurricane in recorded history. And then, 
on October 18, two days after a Spanish fleet of 74 ships bearing 4,000 soldiers under the command of General Don Bernardo Galvez, that's where Galveston gets its name, departed from Havana to attack Pensacola. A third hurricane struck. Known today as Solano's hurricane for Jose Solano, the admiral in charge of the fleet, the storm ravaged the Gulf of Mexico for three days and ultimately drove the remains of the Spanish fleet back to Cuba. With dozens of vessels sunk and dismasted and hundreds of soldiers and sailors drowned, Solano and Galvez reluctantly decided to postpone the attack until the following year. The lesson was impossible to ignore. Given the seasonal dangers of the storm-battered string of islands, the best place for a navy in the summer and fall was anywhere but the Caribbean. Up until this point, France had viewed a naval expedition to the north on the behalf of the United States as a possibility, but hardly a priority. After that horrendous October, a different attitude prevailed. And thus begins the year of Yorktown, because it's only in a year that things miraculously transpire to, to create the, the Allied victory uh, that will ultimately win us our independence. Now, Washington is desperate, as I said earlier, to, for the French fleet to sail up the coast and help him. Unfortunately, the French government, after several years of war, is becoming increasingly pessimistic about America's ability to carry through this revolution. And in fact, uh, and by this time, in the summer of 1780, that previous summer, uh, a 5,000-man French army under General Rochambeau uh, had sailed over from France and arrived in Newport uh, with a small fleet of ships and the British Navy uh, did exactly what they usually did in Europe. They established a blockade and Rochambeau was stuck in Newport. You know, this was a, once again added to Washington's frustrations. And so Washington needed a big fleet to come up from the Caribbean. But the French government were so fearful that it was all going to fall apart that they had instructed the um, Rochambeau not to tell Washington about the location of the French fleet. Uh, so Washington and Rochambeau have a meeting uh, in Wethersfield outside Hartford to discuss what to do. Washington, quite rightly at this stage in the war, says we should attack New York. At this stage, that's the only area where there are enough British soldiers, more than 10,000 of them under the command of Henry Clinton. They're now dug in. There's a, that's the only place where there's a big enough enemy army to create the victory that could end this war. And so he tells Rochambeau, Shouldn't we go there? The Chesapeake is also an option because, you know, there's been activity there with, with Benedict Arnold and Cornwallis by this time has moved into the Virginia theater. And that is a possibility, and Washington recognizes this. But by this time, Cornwallis is moving around. There's no place. He hasn't dug in anywhere. There's no opportunity at this point for a potential victory. And so Rochambeau says, okay, that sounds good. We agreed. It's New York. He writes Admiral de Grasse, who in March has left uh, from Brest, France, with a, with a very large fleet, telling him, Washington would like to go to New York, but I think the Chesapeake might be the best place. Uh, uh, finally, uh, in June, uh, Washington learns of de Grasse's activities in the Caribbean. How does he learn about it? He reads about it in a newspaper. And he, you know, confronts Rochambeau. What's going on here? He said, yes, don't worry. I've told him. Um, yeah, yeah, it'll be okay. August 14th, 1781. 
Washington is in New York. By this time, Rochambeau has, has brought his army down from uh, overland, from Newport to New York. They've combined their forces. Washington gets the letter from de Grasse. He's not sailing for New York. He's sailing for the Chesapeake. Initially, Washington is very angry. There are two delegates from Congress who witness his emotions when he gets this letter. And Washington, you know, he, he had he had he had a char he was he had tremendous powers of self-control. And uh, what amazed me, however, during this year, the, ten the pressures were so immense upon him. He knew that if it didn't happen in this year, it wasn't going to happen. That, you know, he would have these upwellings of emotion. At one point, uh, that, that previous winter, um, he, he's at, you know, at his headquarters in New Windsor, New York. Uh, he had an upstairs office uh, in the stone building on the Hudson. And uh, Hamilton is his right-hand man, his, you know, his, his, his best aide. And... Uh, he asked, tells Hamilton, I need you up here uh, because they're writing the orders for, uh, for Lafayette to go down after, after Benedict Arnold. Hamilton said, I'll be right with you. I just need to get some orders down to, to someone downstairs. He goes down. Lafayette's there about to go up. He's all excited. He stops Hamilton and starts talking. Hamilton's, look, I have to go upstairs. By the time he goes upstairs, there's Washington standing at the head of the staircase. He's really angry. He says, you do me a disservice, sir, by taking so long to come up here. Hamilton, who's begun to chafe under, you know, Washington had this enormous charismatic force field. Uh, uh, and, you know, to operate within that was, was potentially enervating. And, and this was an extremely ambitious young man who wanted to, he was done with the office. He wanted to be out there on the field. And he says to Washington, with that, this, we part. And that's the end of that particular collaboration during the revolution. And, you know, Washington, however, he could express those emotions, but then he had he always would put those emotions behind him and do what was best for the country. Uh, he recognized that that Hamilton was an immense talent, and said, uh, uh, much to Hamilton's surprise, ultimately gave him the position he deserved in the army that would ultimately march to Yorktown. I mean, this was Washington, and he erupts in anger when he hears that de Grasse is sailing for, for the Chesapeake, because even if the Chesapeake is where they're going to attack, if that fleet had come to New York, he could have loaded his army onto those ships, and they could have sailed with relatively lightning speed down to the Chesapeake. How was he supposed to get an army in summer 500 miles into the killing fevers of the tidewater. His New Englanders had no interest in going south, particularly because they had not been paid in years. How was he supposed to do this? When the delegates come return a few hours later for breakfast, Washington is completely calm. He says to the delegates, now we are, you know, you obviously know what's next. How can you help us? This was Washington. And what he does is convinces Clinton in New York that he's, he's, he is indeed attacking New York. Uh, his, he and Rochambeau are in Philadelphia by the time Sir Henry Clinton realizes that the army isn't going for New York, they are going for Cornwallis, who, through a very fortuitous set of circumstances, has by this point, and only very late, only by the middle of August does he do this, he has decided to, di he's dug into Yorktown to create a naval base. 
with 7,000 soldiers. Suddenly, all the pieces are beginning to fall into place. The French didn't know that was going to happen. No one knew that was going to happen. Cornwallis didn't know it was going to happen just a month before, but it's all beginning to happen. But Washington has not heard anything about de Grasse. Where are the French? They should have been in the Chesapeake weeks ago. He's in, in uh, Head of Elk at the northern, uh, extreme north part of the Chesapeake, about to help load up uh, soldiers onto ships to sail down, down the Chesapeake when he gets a dispatch. Uh, de Grasse has sailed into the Chesapeake with 28 ships of the line. Washington turns his horse around, rides to Chester, Pennsylvania, where he knows Rochambeau and his entourage of officers are about to arrive after sailing down the Delaware, inspecting the American forts. They are approaching the wharf there at, Ch at Chester when they see someone on, uh, on the dock with a hat in one hand, a handkerchief in another, jumping up and down and waving his arms. And they're going, who the heck could that be? That couldn't be Washington. He would never act that. It's Washington. He, you know, he is finally, finally, something has gone right. Finally, he, had, he, you know, naval superiority has been established in the Chesapeake. He, uh, the Rochambeau disembarks. They embrace one another, and Washington was not a hugger. Uh, and on they go. They arrive in Mount Vernon. Washington hasn't been home in six years for the entirety of the war up until now. There are four grandchildren he has not yet met. He and Rochambeau throw out their, the, the unfurl, unspool their, their maps on the dining room table and strategize about what they're going to do once they get to Yorktown. On they go. Washington's only a few miles from, from uh, Mount Vernon when he gets another dispatch. A large British naval force has appeared at the entrance to the Chesapeake. De Grasse sailed out days ago to, to do battle, and no one knows what's happened. In the history of up until now, when a British fleet and a French fleet met, the chances were the British were going to, to, uh, to, to uh, prevail. Washington's aide would record in his diary, you know, words to the effect of very upset. On they go. And what would transpire uh, when that British fleet, under the uh, command of Admiral Graves, and uh, uh, the, the French fleet, under de Grasse, would meet, would be called the Battle of the Chesapeake. Now, we Americans are very familiar with the victory at Yorktown. But most, most of us have very little understanding that that great victory was absolutely dependent on this naval battle, which has been rightly called the most important naval battle in the history of the world, given its ultimate ramifications. I am not going to go into the details of that battle. That's why you got to buy the book. <laughs> but I will say, it is one heck of a battle. And, um, and the French prevail. And if they hadn't, Graves would have sailed into the Chesapeake loaded up Cornwallis's army of 7,000 soldiers, sailed with lightning speed to New York. They would have taken West Point, ravaged that coast, and Washington and Rochambeau would have been left you know, with an empty trap, and it would have all gone for naught. It didn't happen. 
the French won. And this, and just as de Grasse sails into the Chesapeake, Washington and Rochambeau arrive, their armies soon follow, the siege begins, and in October, Lord Cornwallis surrenders. And so I am here before you tonight to tell you that the victory that established our independence was, and I think this is the appropriate phrase, a fait accompli based on a naval battle fought between the French and the British in which no Americans participated. <laughs> Alliances have been an absolutely essential part of this nation's history. We would not be a country if it wasn't for the alliance that made Yorktown possible. And I think it's a lesson that's as important today as any time, particularly when it came to the absolute genesis of this country. Now, so often, I wanted there to be this moment for Washington to have that high five moment, you know, yes. And yes, Cornwallis surrenders, but Washington's stepson, Jackie Custis, Martha's uh, eldest son, um, was, uh, uh, had accompanied Washington to Yorktown. He came down with camp fever. Shortly after the victory, Washington rushes to his bedside and Jackie dies. This means as the country is celebrating, he and Martha are in mourning in, at Mount Vernon. Uh, and the war goes on for two more years. It takes that long to negotiate the peace treaty that will establish the terms of our independence. Uh, and Things don't go well in those two years. His army has not been paid. His officers, who have been you know, loyal to him throughout this whole time, are beginning to rabble-rouse. He's now once again dug in on the Hudson, uh, this time in Newburgh, New York. And in the March of 1783, uh, a group of his officers propose that they march on Philadelphia and demand that the Continental Congress pay them at gunpoint. This would have been the military coup that would have destroyed the Republican experiment of the United States. Washington goes before them, delivers this eloquent speech. They are completely unmoved. He, he, then, uh, he then takes out a letter. It's from a delegate uh, to, the, to, to the Congress, and he, sympathetic to the officer's call, and he says, I want to read this to you. Washington was 50, like many people, who turned 50, he is having increasing troubles reading, reading the written word. No, no, most people don't know it, but he's ordered up his first pair of reading glasses. He takes out the letter. He try, starts trying to read the, 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 the writing, but clearly can't read it. And he says, excuse me, gentlemen, I have not only gone gray under your service, I am apparently going blind. And he takes out those glasses that no one's ever seen and begins to read. Every, uh, there isn't a dry eye among his officers. They say, okay, sure. <laughs> if you promise us, we'll do it. Washington, in March of 1783, saves America because this would have been the end of it. It's not until November of 1783 that finally the, the British evacuate from New York. Washington has, uh, most of his officers are still angry with him because the promises he made at Newburgh don't come to fruition. Congress once again lets him down. But there are a few loyal officers that, that, uh, with which he has a very emotional um, uh, dinner at France's Tavern. He then makes his way to Annapolis. Why Annapolis? Because the Continental Congress is so fearful that they are going to be attacked by their own army 
that they have decided they have to leave Philadelphia and moved to Annapolis. This just this shows you how tentative this country's government was, a bare window dressing. Washington uh, has to cool his heel for two weeks in Annapolis because it takes that long for them to get a quorum. What he wants to do is surrender his military commission to Congress. When King George of England hears that this is Washington's intention, he tells the American-born painter Benjamin West, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world because he will be walking away from ultimate power. All he wants to do is go home to Mount Vernon. He is so uh, emotional when it comes to uh, reading his, his address to Congress. His right hand is shaking so much he has to hold it with his left. He, he surrenders his commission. Uh, it's December 23rd. Uh, he and two aides and his enslaved African-American uh, assistant, uh, Billy, uh, Billy, who's been with him for the entire war, they ride to Mount Vernon. Uh, they arrive on Christmas Eve. Uh, now, I finished my first draft of In the Hurricane's Eye on Christmas Eve, and it was a different kind of, of Christmas for me, let you know. I mean, I, I grew up in the 60s uh, when there were no heroes, um, and I've always had a hard time. I think it's kind of an overused term, but I have to say when it comes to the creation of this country, this union, um, we wouldn't be here without Washington. And I called this the, the hurricane's eye because I think a hurricane is the perfect metaphor for not only the revolution, but this year. You know, I grew up thinking of the revolution as a linear progression. Uh, each battle is a stepping stone to God-ordained American victory. As Washington knew better than anyone, it wasn't that way at all. Um, if this was more like a hurricane, forces beyond anyone's control, uh, pulled by forces, you know, that, that were on their own, uh, everything threatening to blow apart, only with Washington in the hurricane's eye. Thank you very much.